Open up to Ephesians 5. We are starting uh, what is probably going to feel like a little bit of a, uh, a mini-series within the Ephesians series, and that is a, uh, a time spent together around Paul's view of the Christian household or the godly home. That is at least what uh, Richard Baxter called his book that I recommend to every single one of you, uh, The Godly Home by Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan born in 1615, and he was a pastor uh, in England, and he, uh, it, the book is filled with practical, godly, theological sort of helps. But uh, it, we're going to go through Ephes- the end of Ephesians 5 and into Ephesians 6, which uh, Martin Luther called the Hustekaifen, because uh, he was German and cool. And that was basically a, uh, uh, a German word that meant the household table. Or in other words, a table of contents for the Christian home or, or a list of requirements for people in the household. And it was actually quite common for uh, writers in the early centuries in the Greek and Roman world to sort of write, write down uh, as, they, as maybe they were philosophers or they were gurus of some type and they would describe the duties of a man or the duties of people and they would philosophize and then they would, towards the end of their letters, give a list of the different responsibilities and requirements of each of the members of the household. They would, it was, it was not always very uniform, but what Paul does, he does the Christian Kustaifen, right? He does that you'll sound like a Nazi if you chant that. Please just don't use the word in large groups. But um, uh, that, that's what he's given to us. The Christian household list of responsibilities and requirements as he approaches wives towards husbands, husbands towards wives, parents towards children, and also slaves towards masters. That'll be a fun one. But, uh, or, or otherwise, employees towards employers. And I recommend this book because of its rich godliness and practicality on that matter. It is very old-fashioned, so if you're not very traditional, you've got to put a cup on and swallow uh, and, and, and drink deeply. But also, you do have to just keep an eye out for funny things like this. This had me laughing, and I read it to Joy with a straight face, and she just looked at me like, what the heck? And I said, this is a duty of a wife to her husband. This is what Richard Baxter says. Be especially loving to your husbands. Your natures give you an advantage in this, and love will feed love. Here's what he says. This is your special requirement for all the troubles that your infirmities put them through. <laughs> Just, if your hu- husband, like, you get it. Wives, you're probably you're like, yeah, it's true. It's like we're just a hard breed and uh, we take a lot, so we should give them some love for, uh, as, uh, as a thank you. That, it's filled with good wisdom like that and some good laughs. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 22 and we'll read till verse 33 the first uh, section of the, the Apostle Paul's commands to Christian households who seek to live in light of the gospel that we have been given through Jesus Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your... In fact, let me start in verse 21 from the preceding paragraph, though in the Greek, a flowing thought, on his uh, uh, commands on how to be filled with the Spirit, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her with the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. He quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. May God bless the reading of his own powerful word in our midst this evening. Well, I don't like to come up and make the first word out of my mouth a disagreement with my co-elder, but Keith is wrong. We just won't have time to get to the first verse tonight on wives submitting to husbands. So if you've come along and this is why you brought your family, you brought your washing, you needed to hear this one, something like, I don't know, but, but we're going to get to that next week. I, I wrote an introduction and I was preaching it at the Gold Coast, hoping to get to verse 22, and we were at 40 minutes at, uh, at the end of the introduction, so we said, let's wrap it up. That's a sermon on God's view of marriage, and we'll do submission next week, and husbands the week after. I'm sorry to throw off anybody's schedule if you've been tightly bound to that idea, but God created marriage. Marriage is God's idea, and it is a good idea. All right, one amen. We've got to do it. There are newlyweds, and there are newly engaged people in the room, so we need to give it some more than that. Uh, God, uh, uh, marriage is God's idea, and it is a good idea. Women, just rack up the brownie points. Look at your husband's amen in that voluntarily first time around. It is a good idea. It is a blessing. And everywhere that Scripture speaks of marriage in the Bible, everywhere that Scripture speaks of it, it speaks of it in a positive light as a beautiful thing and a great gift from God. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The Scripture is filled with a positive view and a glorious view of marriage. Proverbs 31 verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Amen, men? All right, you're trying. That's good. Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their talk. You just know that this was written for a guy. He goes, two are better than one, because work's really productive. Like, let me sell this whole companionship thing to you. Uh, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their work. How romantic. Uh, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Or again, if two lie together, they keep warm. Amen, somebody. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. God speaks of marriage as a gift for mankind in general, and therefore it is truly a gift for across all demographics and all socioeconomics. Okay, so, so it is a gift whether you are a poor agricultural farmer who is living day to day and taking out of the ground what you need to survive and walking for water, it is a blessing to have a wife alongside in companionship. If you're a king or you're an emperor and you are ruling, you you will be blessed to have a wife alongside to satisfy and love and help and guide and even counsel. If you are in the ancient world and the in 
internet isn't invented and, and you're struggling for survival without the invention of even antibiotics, it's a blessed thing to have a wife with you. If you're in our day and age and the internet is, is doing all that it's doing to our world and, 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 and our world is as it is, it is still a blessing today, not just the ancient world, but the scripture speaks to all things and all times. It is a blessing to have a wife. Ladies, it is a blessing, a gift from God to have a husband. <clears throat> It is even true in a perfect world. Even if we lived in a perfect world without sin, without the curse, and without clothes, still God would say, this is Genesis, God would still say, it is not good for man to be alone. That's what he said of Adam. He made him upright, he made him perfect, he made him unfallen, he gave him a perfect world and told to him... Fulfill the, fill the world with people. Glorify me by tilling the garden and expanding it. And here's how to map your way around these rivers. Glorify the, fill the world with my glory. He was in effect told. He was blessed and told, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion. But as Adam started going about that, and we don't know whether it was a day, a couple of days, couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of years. I don't know how long it was between Adam and Eve being created. However, it was long enough for God to be able to see the burning in Adam's heart and God to speak out over creation. It's just no good. Any single man in the room want to amen that? It's not good to be alone. There we go. All right, we're on board tonight. Uh, God said to humankind to be, to He blessed them and He made them. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply, which was a command to Adam and Eve, but also a command in Adam and Eve to all humankind after them. Adam and Eve, especially Adam, is what we call the head of the human race, the representative of the human race, and so it is very fair and fitting when we're doing theology. We see Paul do this and Jesus do this. Uh, is that we look back at the example of the Garden of Eden and Adam's relationship and his commands, and it is a very good thing to make application to all humanity and to make application to all of nature because of what we see in God's perfect world. They were God's prototype. And so we do that and we understand that God told them to be fruitful and multiply, but that necessarily uh, applies to all of us as well. All people born as Adam's progeny and descendants. It is not good for those men to be alone. And so God has made helpers suitable for him in the beautiful, blessed existence of the woman. The first, sounds like a documentary by a nerd, the woman. Look at her in a natural habitat. That's a girl. Uh, but, you know, God made a girl and men are supposed to stand there. Wow, I want one. I want to be, I want to give my life for them. I, this is a great gift. This is good. That's how God wants us to think of marriage. So <clears throat> it is common, uh, sorry, what we see there in God's command to Adam and all mankind after him to be fruitful and multiply, we see an obligation and in fact a binding command on every generation to find a wife and be fruitful with her, to give yourself to being taken by a husband and being fruitful with him in life. That is a binding command on every generation after Adam, and we see it as a continual blessing throughout all of Scripture, our delight to obey that duty. There is a few things we're going to go through here about much of our world being against God's design of marriage. That is to say that much of our world despises marriage. That's just how it is. 
And the first sort of way we could uh, uh, address this, and it would be the most obvious one, and the, the elephant in the room, if I didn't want to talk about it, you'd ask. And, but, but one of the biggest sort of anti-marriage uh, uh, viewpoints, ideologies in the world today is, of course, the, the, the gay or homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage idea and I, uh, uh, ideology. And, and you could say, hey, that's not a hatred of marriage. That's a love of marriage. They love marriage so much, they just want a piece of the pie. They love marriage so much, they want to share it around. But that's not how things with definitions work. If I said I made you a dessert, well, my wife made you a dessert. You would not want what I made you. If I'm, my wife made you a dessert and it's, it's I don't know, it's gluten-free, it's lactose-free, I don't know why she would do that, but whatever. And, and you go, that's, that's her dessert. And then I come back and I see that you take a little scoop of it, put it into a big smoothie cup with four tablespoons of, of, of ice cream and a whole bunch of sauce and four cups of sugar and blend it up. You can't then say, I loved your wife's dessert. I would say, no, after what you've done to it, you have destroyed it, mutilated it, ripped it apart, and made it into something entirely different. I can't call that what my wife made. And in the same way, once people say, we love marriage, we just hate how, how restrictive it is, right? One man, one woman, we just don't like that part. And so what we do is we take a part of it, and, and it's just a relational sexual union of some kind, and then we add to it that men can do it with men and women can do it with women. Now, now we love marriage, you would rightly say, that's not marriage anymore. You added too much to it. You took away important things from it. It's no longer the thing that God designed. And the way it works with God's word is he creates realities. If he says marriage is a man-woman union for life entered into voluntarily, and you say, yeah, I love the same sex being able to get married, he would say it's not marriage. You're missing the definition. Part of the essence of what makes it is it's delimiting restrictive factors. That's, that's like you being a human. Part of you being a human is that you have, you have a border or you have restricted parts. It's called a body, right? If I said, I love your heart, I love you, I love who you are, I want your heart on my mantelpiece, I just became Hannibal Lecter. I murdered you. I didn't actually love you. So, so part of our makeup is that it stays together or it's destroyed. So it is with marriage. If you take off its borders and take out its definition, guess what? It doesn't exist anymore. So rather than saying that these days we have gay marriage, we should rather say that we have gay so-called marriage, which is no marriage at all. It's like saying we have a, we have a walking fish or we have a, a four-legged bird. You would say that's, that's mutually exclusive. It's not that thing. God's realities are not Plato to be uh, fooled around with and maintain their definition. So that's one way that much of our world hates true, godly, biblical marriage. There's another way that sort of on the op opposite end, which is those who despise marriage because they romanticize it and idealize it, they love the idea of marriage, not the reality of marriage. And idolizing it so much, they come eventually to demonize it once it falls off its very shaky, tall pedestal. And this would, it might happen to some guys. I've only ever, I've never met that guy. All right, usually a gal problem is from the youngest age, it's the Disney. It's the fairy tale mindset of the dream wedding and the, and the horse and carriage. And here's what it's all going to look like. And, and who are you going to marry? Whoever fits into this tuxedo that I've already bought. And whoever will say the correct words at the altar at my palace wedding. And, and once, the, once the reality of marriage comes in and it loses the shine and it's not quite so romantic, Romeo, Juliet, all of that kind of 
thing, the reality sets in and it's, it's miserable or it's, or it's heading for a, a swift and painful divorce. There is a way to despise the reality of marriage because we love or idolize a, an idea of marriage. Or this might even happen sometimes when people feel like they're just not a full Christian yet. They're just not really loved by God until they're married. And this is entirely false. People, people who, 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 who feel like once, once I get married, then I'll be a real Christian. Once I find myself a wife, then I'll be a real man. Once I, once I find myself as a, as a homemaker to a Christian man, then God will love me and I'll feel accepted. And that is false. Paul's letters remind us that there is no appropriate qualifier to the identity in Christ. If by faith, you are joined to Christ, your identity is in Christ, and there's no such thing as Jewish in Christ, so some extra points, or Gentile in Christ, or male in Christ, and therefore on another, on another level, or female in Christ, and therefore, or single in Christ, and married in Christ, as if those, those remove you from the same central function and value of being in Christ. That is our core. All of us, regardless of status in marriage or love, are in Christ, whether divorced or widowed or whatever else, or your past sin. It doesn't distinguish or condition the fact that you are in Christ. Only your faith in Jesus does. Do you trust Jesus? You are valued as an, inherit, as, as an adopted, justified child of God. That's all that matters on that end of things. So there's a way to romanticize and idealize marriage. Or people might despise marriage by their irreverent, their irreverence around it. That is that some people are willing to dabble in marriage because it has some benefits. It, it helps out with some of the legalities. It's pretty handy come tax time. I get to make her a trustee. And there's a couple of ways that that helps me out with the business. Or, or you know what, to get a, my, 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 my mother-in-law off my back, I just asked her to, to keep her from nagging at me. You know, we, we, we went and got married so that now it's official. Or to make my religious family sort of, sort of happy, we got married because we were sleeping together anyway. And this is a way that they enter into marriage for the sake of the relationship, but it's irreverent. They don't realize the sanctity of marriage. They don't value it for its own value. And therefore, they, are, they, are, they see it as fairly, uh, fairly disposable. You're in it while it's working. And when it, it stops to be functional or helpful, well, you'll end that marriage. Maybe move on to another or not. But it becomes disposable. This is a lot of uh, men in our world today. Or younger guys, not, not just younger guys, but, but, but that's common too, uh, who fornicate and date with gals without, without really having a plan for marriage. And you may say, I'm a Christian and I'm dating a girl. We're not fornicating, but I don't have a plan to get married. And the reality is that you're planning to fornicate. That's how it works. If you want to be in an indefinite relationship with a girl that you say you love and value, and you don't have six to 18 month plans in terms of will we have enough money when can I propose would when could we marry and could we make a life work together if that's not in your thinking then you're only with her whether he'll admit it or not to allow some future fornication to take place dating whatever we call it, you want to call it dating or courting or whatever it's uh, it's ultimately for the purpose of marrying fairly soon that's that's the plan so that is a way of being irreverent about marriage or we might have those, and this is much more common, people who despise marriage by normalizing and promoting a prolonged singleness. 
This even happens, and is probably most common of everything we've said, most common in the church, even like our tribe, like reformed evangelical kind of tribes, they normalize and promote prolonged singleness instead of marriage. That is, they would say, marriage can help some people, but it is, it is really a necessary evil that is to be avoided if you can help it. It is a strain on your resources and your opportunities. It is a drain on your skills and your time and your energy and your mission and your goals and your independence. And therefore, it is one of multiple lifestyle choices, but not one to get too excited about. If you're very excited about friends getting engaged and yourself getting married, you're probably just imbibing a leftover notion of the toxic patriarchy. It's just still in you, and that's that coming out. So many people, even many Christians, speak about it. They say, and, and we need to be honest in one sense that, that marriage is, no doubt, ha, it, marriage has been the, the, the arena in which many people have been hurt in the past, either abused or, 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 or hurt or, or, or it was going well to a time and then in the separation, divorce or something else, it got hurt. Or, or maybe it was just a, a, a widower that, that, that somebody passed away and there was hurt there that you could have, you could have escaped if there was not marriage. And, and the reality is that, that, that as, as Proverbs 18 told us, he who finds a wife finds a rare thing like a jewel. No one's ever gone and found a jewel in nature that didn't put themselves at tremendous risk of hurt. They're prized, they're fought over, they're in mines, they're in dangerous shafts and under huge mountains. It's dangerous to have something so valuable. And the same is with marriage. Of course, there is people, there are many people, there are stories upon stories of people who have been hurt in the confines and context of marriage, but, but that is just a reality of it. That speaks to its value, not its devalue. As much as marriage will be the source of some of your most severe hurts and some of your most uh, heartbroken moments, it will also be the source of the greatest and highest joys. There's an old Swedish proverb that says, a joy shared is a joy doubled. That's what it's like in marriage. It's a, it, the normal good thing happened, but when you could go home and share it with a wife and it's her effort that's gone into this too, it becomes a double joy. Marriage, what the Bible focuses on, is that marriage is the source of our greatest joys in life. So when people speak about marriage as if it's neutral, like it's one of the gifts of God, but we definitely shouldn't normalize marriage or, or, or try and promote marriage as the norm. They'll say, you know, it's good for some people, it's fine for others, it's needed for others, but it's not at all norm normative. They say, it's a lifestyle choice, don't push it on other people. Here's what some people say, I'm going to push against it. I just want you to listen carefully and hear what I am saying, not what I'm not saying. Here's what some people will say in multiple blogs, books, conferences, and things like that. They will say things like, you can glorify God just as much in your singleness as you can in your marriage. Wrong. Because what they're pushing for is a removal of marriage as normative because you can glorify God just as much single as you can married. Now, here's what's wrong about that. You can't glorify God in your singleness if your singleness is due to sin. 
If your singleness, if you're single because you've imbibed this, this cultural idea that marriage is a big drain, not at all what we're called to do, I don't believe those scriptures are for me, and therefore, failing to obey Hebrews 13, which says, hold marriage in honor, if you dishonor marriage, then your singleness is not glorifying to God. Here's how you can glorify God in singleness, and we must if we are single. The first option is, you honor marriage. You say, thank you, God, for marriage. I wouldn't be here, probably. I wouldn't be here if at least that design wasn't in play in this world. We thank you for marriage. It's a gift and a blessing. We thank you for marriage. I want to have it one day. I pray for a future spouse. I'll get myself ready as much as I can. I'll seek counsel on how to be responsible in my youth so that I can invest in a future marriage, whoever it will be to. You do that, and then God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, withholds the, the, the reception of the gift of marriage from you. So that you're doing your part. You're ready, you're willing, you're godly, you're submissive to God's word, and, and you're honoring marriage, but God holds back the right person from you, then you have an affliction. That is, you, you, you are suffering in the, it's not good to be aloneness. You, you are suffering with loneliness and, and probably rejection and, and difficulty and maybe seeing other people get married and feeling temptations to covetousness. And yet, if in that moment, in that season, you are able to say, I trust God, I'm not going to cheat my way through sin. I'm not going to dishonor marriage by saying, screw it, I didn't want it anyway. Who would want that? I'm not going to become misogynistic against women who say no to me or, or, or against men who keep on, who, who aren't pursuing me. I'm not going to become bitter. I pursue marriage, I desire marriage, but I'm submitted to God's will. In that instance, you are honoring and glorifying God in your singleness and praise God for it. I think it's, an, it's a hurt to those people. It's unhelpful for those people if we then all go around saying, what a blessing. You're as blessed as if you were married. Uh, well, that, that's not what Paul says. He says, I'm burning, and I can feel it right about here, okay? I'm really burning, and it sucks. I want to be married. Now, that's one way to glorify God in singleness. The only other way you can glorify God in singleness is if, like Paul, this is in 1 Corinthians 7, if, like Paul, you say, I honor marriage, it's tremendous, I, I recommend and commend it, it's beautiful and good. However, I am tangibly called to a kind of ministry and mission that makes marriage and children unattainable and dangerous. I would be a negligent father and husband if I took for myself a woman, promised to protect her, then went and preached in Athens and preached in Philippi and got her beat up while she's pregnant with my child. Paul's mission and marriage were incompatible. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish there was more of you like that. I wish there was more missions, missionaries that God had called to such extreme and dire and unique callings that there was more need for singleness. However, he says, I know we're each called to our own giftings. Therefore, and this is quite a unique situation and, and, and very few will fall into it, some men and some women, but if you are tangibly, there is not a maybe one day, but like right now in my life, there is opportunities for ministry and mission which are incompatible to marriage and children. If that is the case, then that allows us to be single for the sake of the gospel and glorify God in our singleness as much in marriage. Or if we are seeking marriage but God withholds it, then we can say, 
then you're glorifying God in your marriage. But if we sit in this limbo and say, don't want a part of it anyway, real cute for you guys who need to get married, I don't desire it, I don't see it as a glorious good thing, then you're not glorifying God in your singleness. And there needs to be repentance. Some people will say, being a wife and being a mother is not the highest calling for women. Being a husband and being a father is not the highest calling for men. There is more to it. And the Bible would say, you're confusing your categories. It's not as if if you're a wife, you're nothing else, or if you're a mother, you're nothing else, if you're a husband, you're nothing else. We glorify God in many ways. It's not, a, it's not speaking to ontology and value in the church to say that being a wife and a mother is the great gift and calling of God, and that to take responsibility to himself, find a wife, love and protect her, and make children after himself is the high calling of men. To say that is not to say that if you are not there yet, you're in sin or you're devalued. Let's not mix the categories and get more emotional than logical and theological. <coughs> Many people would say, this whole command to get married, like, like a command to get married, that's pretty extreme. Just so you know, I'm aware that's an extremist position. I'm aware of the minority position that I take, though, of course, the majority, if we're talking historical Christianity, yeah, like before the 50s, majority position, after the feminist waves have come through the church, now I'm somehow a minority, and I care that much. So, uh, uh, we know that this is pretty uncommon today to think this way, but most people will sort of think, the command to be fruitful, multiply, it just isn't binding on every generation. You know, sometimes it's because they're neo-pagans and they're saying we need to sustain Mother Earth and she groans and tells us, please stop overpopulating me. So we need to all have one or no children so that we can let Earth heal herself. And we say, no, that is directly atheistic. That is directly pagan thinking. God gave humans to the earth to be his image and those who subdue and glorify the earth. He did not give the earth to glorify itself, to, to magnify itself and keep itself. That's our job. So the solution will always be more people. We're running out of water. You know what the solution is? Have more babies. One of them will come up with a solution. There's more disease and food shortages and crop shortages. You know what the solution is? One of our kids might come up with a problem because mankind are amazing geniuses when we understand who we are in the image of God. That's just a reality. <clears throat> All the aliens will come and make us a pyramid, and that's another story. But moving on. God would say to us in Genesis 1.28, to Adam and to all of us, be fruitful and multiply. That is even logically a necessarily multi-generational command, though some would assume that it was taken away in the curse. <clears throat> However, we have a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, that as God has flooded the earth because of the sin and that God has saved Noah, his sons and their wives. And then he says to them, this is what Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. He throws a whole bunch of phrases there to say, Fill this earth, it is your home to serve me and glorify me in it. Now, now, of course, that shows us that not only was it given to Adam, it was given to all of us, 
Because when God sort of restarts with Noah, he reiterates it to Noah. And that's after the curse, that's after everything else. That is not merely a Garden of Eden command. God's command, therefore, we can, we can fill in, we're mature people tonight, we can fill in the invisible chain and the link, can't we? God says, get married, be fruitful. In between there, he is clearly telling Adam and Eve and Noah and his wife, have lots of... Okay, you did better than the Gold Coast crew. They said sex. Okay, yeah. I have, in my notes, I have babies. All right? <clears throat> Gold Coasties, you know what they're like. <clears throat> so he assumed get married and have lots of sex and have lots of babies as a fruit of that beautiful union and not just to replace yourselves, right? Kids are not merely a lifestyle choice. They're part and parcel of the marriage design, which is also commanded to all of us to pursue. I would say this, if you are willing to go along with me, no legalism, but willing to go along with me in my puritanical Mennonite mathematical theology, God says multiply. If you have one kid, you've not yet multiplied, that's division. If you have two people come together and have two kids, you're still merely replacing, that's not multiplying. If you come together, have three kids, one of you is multiplied, the other one's still... If you come together and have four kids, no legalism, not judging anybody, this is just how I'm thinking about it, you pray about it, uh, that's multiplication, and it, it is especially godly in my reading of Scripture if it goes boy, 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 girl. That's just, <laughs> that's just me. Joy assured me that that was her reading as well. <clears throat> but really, the emphasis of the Bible is kids rock. Kids are sinners. Kids need to be discipled. Kids will lose sleep, right? But they are a blessing. Do you know why they're a blessing? Not because of their noisy toys, not because of merely what they teach you, not for any other secondary. They are valuable because they have the image of God. In other words, it's not what we get out of them. It is simply the fact that they are images of God that we make children. So, so some people often speak about disliking kids as if that's not a horrendous sin. A horrendous sin. Your kid or somebody else's kid. That, that is like, that's xenophobia, that's worse than racism. Like if I said, I just don't like women, I'd get stoned. If I, if I said, I just don't like that color of people or that age, anyone sort of above 40, just I don't have time for them. How selfish and immature I would be. And yet we're fine with sort of joking or being okay with the idea of, I don't like kids. And go, you don't like people. You think kids are something other than people. They're people. That's the kind of ideology that allows abortion rates to sort of normalize in our world. There's just a class of people that are less than us and we don't like them as much. People, including little people, children, small, bo recently born people are the image of God and therefore if we profess to love God, we love children. And we're just in this culture that will all... I saw this ad for a vasectomy uh, 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 group the other day, and it was just this dad trying to get his work done, trying to go fishing, trying to build his own shed, and he just kept on getting hit in the head with a soccer ball or, or his coffee gets spilt over and all these things. And, he's, uh, 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 and the, the tagline was something like, you can't go back in time, but you can secure the future. Get a vasectomy. How much do kids suck? Like, you can't kill them. You would. If you could go back, you'd get rid of them, but at least do, you know, secure yourself a favor now. What, what, a, what a child-hating age we just live in in the West. <clears throat> but 
children, and I just need to push back on that mindset to all that's children are amazing. They are a blessing from the Lord. I love that Psalm 127 says this. It says, children are a blessing. No, no, before it says that, it says, God gives to his beloved sleep. Pause. <laughs> children are a heritage from the Lord. As if he's saying, you do the work God gives you. He'll make sure you get your rest. You be wise, but God will bless you with the needed rest. And there's no line that needs to be prefaced with that, more so than the line, children are a heritage from the Lord. Because what takes away sleep more than anything else? Those little humans. What is it that, that makes you think that sleep is God and you need more of it at all costs? The sleeplessness of young children, surely. But, 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 but God says children are a blessing. Never believe the lie that they are anything other than a blessing from God and a responsibility to be enjoyed. But the application here is our commandment is to pursue them and see them as a blessing. Malachi chapter 2 verse 15 brings us into this idea of marriage and, and see that not only have we said everyone's obligated to pursue marriage, but a part of marriage is children. And Malachi, in Malachi's uh, generation, the priests and the Levites, the pastors, were all divorcing their wives of 30 years and shacking up with the young pretty gals on the block. And God comes in through Malachi to, to rebuke them for their adultery. And he says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit between them in their union? Right? God made you one flesh. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Do you see that God's design for marriage included and had with it children? And there's some things that are out of our hands or a part of God's sovereignty and providence in making children, but the point is that our hearts should be children rock, I want them, I want lots of them. Genesis 2, verse 24, this is for the men. It says this, having, having put Adam to sleep, and then as he wakes up, God is bringing the rib-turned woman to Adam. This is, this is what I did with that rib, worth the investment. And Adam says, she's called woman. And then he calls her Eve, saying she is the mother of all living, because he had plans for their marriage and what he was going to do with Eve, uh, make her a mum. He says, after that, man, woman, join together in marital union. And then God's, God's commentary on that situation, through the pen of Moses, he says, therefore, that is because God made a man and a woman, and only a man and a woman, because he made them, we know from his design, and now from his word, thank you, Moses, we know from his design, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Men, do you see the expectation here? It's not good for you to stay single, so you are commanded, you shall leave your mother and father and find yourself a praiseworthy woman and turn her into a Proverbs 31 woman. Some guys get that backwards. They think, I'm going to go out and find a single Proverbs 31 woman. She doesn't exist. Proverbs 31 woman is married and she's been at this motherhood wife thing for a while. That's why she's so good at it. You're going to find somebody who might have the makings of a Proverbs 31 woman. Someone who has the submissive spirit and the love of God's word. Someone who loves the Great Commission and loves hard work. That's who you find. But men are command, you shall leave your mother and father and find it. 
find, find, find that relationship, find your wife. But, but in our generation, too many men, they agree with it's not good to be alone part. The solution becomes I won't leave my mother and father. I'll use the basement. I'll have companionship with men online, do games, you know, hold the fort together. I don't know, things like that. And, and, and stay with mum and dad because if I moved out, I'd be lonely. Well, the solution is move out so you can find a wife. That's the solution to your need of companionship. You shall. This is the, the, the command. Therefore, man shall leave his mother and father. Therefore, it is a command. So we don't really have a category for us to ask the question unless you're engaged in a full frontal missional ministry that is dangerous to pursue a wife. Unless that's you, we don't really have a category for asking, Lord, pastor, friend, do you think God wants me to marry? The question is, if you have breath in your lungs to ask the question, the answer is yes, absolutely. He wants you to pursue marriage. His giving the bride is his own prerogative, but he wants you to pursue it at least. Proverbs 19, verse 14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers. Just hands up if you turn 21 and you move out from home and your father has purchased you a property and an inheritance and a full bank account, and a whole bunch of investment portfolio, that would be a blessing. Amen? That would be awesome. You want that. That's a good thing. If your father did that for you, amazing. Well, in the same vein, hear what, hear what the proverbial writer says of a wife. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Finding a wife to join in your youth or at any age God would give and join your life to is, it leaves no room in the biblical mindset, leaves no room for the silliness of speaking like, you know, there's a, there's a death sentence for him here till death do they part. He's not getting out of this. The old, the old ball and chain will be around his legs for good, right? The old dragon who makes all the calls. That kind of language is so common because most of our, the guys in our age are overcompensating, but are also, are also, they despise the reality and the beauty of marriage. God says, that's a gift. You have a woman at home, you have a woman in your life, you have a woman to love, that's a gift from God. Speak about it that way, honor her that way, love her that way as a gift. <clears throat> and what about, this is where maybe we find ourselves having to answer the question in our day and age, even within the church, is what about if I'm well, what about if I have a friend who is same-sex attracted? What do they do about marriage? There's a growing constituency and even reformed but evangelical churches that will say, conservatively, it's true, marriage is only between one man and a woman, so no Christian with same-sex attraction should get married to a member of the same sex. On that, they are conservative. But then they will go and say that neither should they pursue a marriage with somebody they're not attracted to. So we have this bubble of people called single same-sex attractedness. They're single because they can't get married, and they can't get married because they, they, they identify themselves as those attracted to, the, to somebody who would be sinful to marry. Now, before, before you go out and start reading all the blogs and conference posts and everything like and the books, and you get caught up in the confusion of how complex this issue is, let me just read to you Paul's very, very, very simple and clear solution to this problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. 
Then the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that means her sexual intimacy, and likewise the wife to her husband. Full stop. You know what same-sex attractiveness is in the Bible? Sexual immorality. You know God's solution for the temptation to sexual immorality? Find someone of the opposite gender, make it work. I promise you the biology isn't going to be the problem. Okay? That, that's God's... So if we sort of get a, this, this, this difficult cultural moment, I'll hear it called, this, this very uh, prickly pastoral situation, how should we advise people in marriage? You say, I just... I, I know that in the practice of it and in the advice of it, there will be differing difficulties for different situations. But what I won't do as a pastor is speak to it so vaguely as if I make out God to be this bumbling idiot who can't speak clearly in his word. Like he just didn't know the 21st century, the sexual revolution would come around. He just had no clue that there'd be all these same-sex attractive people. So his word just says nothing to them. It does. It's sexual morality, according to Romans 1, to, to, to look at somebody of the same gender and feel anything other than mateship, companion, if you're a dude, anger, I don't know. We, that's just always bubbling underneath. So if you look at somebody of the same gender and there is arousal within you, that is sexual immorality to be confessed, see, uh, 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 repented of, and trusting that God will help you put it away. Will it be immediate? No. Not necessarily. Will it be differing degrees of difficulty? Yes. Is the answer ever anything other than find somebody with opposite plumbing to you and tell them of the struggles and say, Paul says, I know it doesn't sound very romantic, but I struggle with sexual immorality. Can you help me fix that? And you say that down on a ring, on a, on a knee with a ring. <laughs> to be real practical and not to romanticize and Disneyize marriage, that's how it works. <clears throat> And that is God's design. <coughs> marriage is God's idea and it is a good idea. Amen? Amen? Marriage is God's gift and we are commanded to pursue it and expect it as a gift. Marriage is the only place for sex to be enjoyed as sex is the physical union of the covenantal relationship. Therefore, heterosexual marriage is the only appropriate avenue for sexual relationships. And also, children are then the blessed fruit of that marital love and should be delighted in. Marriage is a good gift, good idea. It's a gift to be pursued. Sex is a part of that wonderful gift. And children should be expected and embraced uh, as a result of that great gift. Now, to the guys in the room, we're going to go, how do I pursue a wife? Let's get some principles that make it practical. And we're going to go to the reformers. Now that we're all convinced, we're all commanded to marry, God's sovereignty may limit timing for, all of, for, for us in differing ways, but we're all pursuing it. Therefore, let's just, I'll say it so you don't have to say it, guys. Let's remove the awkwardness, gals. If you're pursued by a guy who comes up and, yeah, maybe he's awkward, but he asks you and you can tell, uh, he wants to know what I'm doing Thursday night, okay. Uh, let's just remove the, the I, not all the awkwardness, because it's always pretty awkward, but, but at least the, 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 the questionableness about that. He's doing his job. He's trying. I can't vouch for all, all of their... Uh, integrity, and we need to be a church that is looking out for the single gals, of course, but the men will seek to pursue obedience to the scriptures, and it'll be pretty funny as their voice cracks as they ask. <clears throat> but nonetheless, guys, let's look to the reformers. Martin Buser, 
Philip Melanchthon and John Calvin were guys around the, in Europe, in Strasbourg, at the same time. And John Calvin was a total nerd when he became a pastor, and he was single. Now, that raises some eyebrows in church circles, especially because he was French. But people were going, why doesn't John Calvin want to get married? What's wrong with him? And his mate, Martin Bucer, like John Calvin was so busy, so intellectual, so focused on work, and a biblically, a bit of a fool, because he didn't think he needed marriage. And so he's focused in this way, and his friend Martin Bucer, he was a big marriage advocate. And him and his wife had, it was their home, but they, they uh, had what was called, it was just colloquially called by people in the city, the Inn of Righteousness. Basically, young people, singles, young couples, widows, widowers, they could just find somewhere to stay in the Buser's home because they were so hospitable, so loving, and he was just a preacher after God's own heart. Now, here's, here's something culturally we might not be aware of. Coming out of the Roman Catholic Church into the age of the Reformation, it was an entirely new idea for preachers and pastors to have wives. The Catholic Church had no such thing. All of the godly men who were employed by the church were single because they were married to God and supposed to be holy. And so, so here's Martin Busey. It wasn't very common for pastors to have wives. And he's telling all the Protestants, like he's preaching and he's teaching young men for the ministry. And he's telling them, you're not going to hear this at our seminary. John Calvin, the nerd, isn't going to tell you this. I'm telling you this. Here's how to find a wife. He like had his first how to get a woman sort of seminar as a pastor in the Reformation. And John Calvin recounts this one time that he complained about marriage. One time. The years that he was with him, he heard him complain once about his wife. And here's what John Calvin recounts Martin Bucer as saying, oh, sorry, sorry, Philip Melanchthon, his other friend, as having said this. Melanchthon was, was encouraging John Calvin along with Martin Bucer, get a woman, get married, get a wife. And, and John Calvin wrote down the one time he remembered Melanchthon complaining against his wife. He says this, She always thinks that I am dying of hunger unless I am stuffed like a sausage. <laughs> that, that is a praiseworthy complaint. Women pursue that. Pursue that to be complained about in that way. That was the only... And so these men just made a marked difference on Calvin. And he thought... I. This is a positive, beautiful thing. It's not like the Catholics said, but funnily enough, Calvin had, had sort of responded and in his early years, he swung too far. He became a, became a Protestant and a, a Calvinist, I guess, uh, a reformer, and he said, I, I don't want people to think that I've just left Roman Catholicism so I can chase tail and get a woman. The way that he said it, because he's a nerd, he said it like this, I don't want them to think I attack Rome for the same reason Greek attacked Troy, to get a wife. Calvin, you're a, you're a nerd. Just say, just say what you mean. Anyway, that was, that was him. He said that, completely different to Martin Luther, who said that he didn't want marriage because he felt it would slow him down. And he said, the only reason I would get married is to annoy and provoke the devil. <laughs> Which is the Pope and the devil, sorry. The Pope and the that's why he got married. But anyway, here's, here's John Calvin. He said, I, I don't want to chase tail, chase a woman, just and have people think that that's what Protestants are all about. But eventually he said to his men, I, I love this idea of marriage. I see it in scripture. I want a woman. And here is the list. Here's what you men need to pursue after. Here's the list that John Calvin, the total nerd, bookworm, wrote down after reading scripture and thinking, what are all the desirable traits that a woman should have to be a praiseworthy pastor's wife? 
Here's his list. He says to them, this is, my own, this is the only beauty that allures me. If she is chaste, not too fussy or fastidious. If she is economical, good with money. If she is patient, and if there is hope that she will be interested about my health. Full stop. <laughs> That's it. If she's not a hussy, doesn't want me to die, and can put up with me. That's his list. So he's not coming out here with a, with a this tall and this color hair and she's got to have this job and, and here's how many things I need to... He just knows all of that, Proverbs 31 material, is to be cultivated. They are to be helped to pursue that. And so Calvin simply says, I want a woman who has the makings of godliness. He submits himself to the simplicity of it and finds a godly wife in the midst of the Reformation. Hebrews 13, 4, as we close out. Hebrews 13 Verse uh, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The reason God wants us to hold marriage in honor, and not just if you're married, let everybody hold marriage in honor as delightful and as needing our protection together, but the reason that marriage must be held in so much honor is because it is ultimately a parable of Jesus' gospel. It is ultimately a parable of God's son, Jesus, that, that coming into the world, he found a sinful race and that he, he lived the life she could never have lived and he gave himself in death to pay off her debts, to pay for her sins and to satisfy the wrath of God. And then in his resurrection, he, he came into eternal life and now, I guess you could say, proposes or calls all mankind, come and believe in me, rest in my atonement, receive my merits as a husband, come and join me by faith and you will be forgiven, you will be saved, you'll be adopted and you'll receive an inheritance. That's the gospel. And so when we dishonor marriage, we may think we're just throwing mud at a wall. But from God's perspective, zoomed out, he sees the picture of his own son and we are dishonoring that. Some of us in this room have been defiling the marriage bed by fornicating, committing adultery, looking at pornography, or otherwise disregarding the purity of the marriage, flirting with married people, flirting with people at work, though you're married. Maybe now, maybe in the recent past, maybe decades ago. And mentioning of marriage and speaking of it in this way may elicit great guilt and hopelessness because it even may feel you've done your dash and you've wasted your time and marriage is now done for you. But marriage is not the gospel. Marriage reminds us of the gospel. You're not going to go to heaven because you have a perfect marriage, have been perfect in your marriage, or will have a perfect marriage, or will get to your marriage bed as a chaste virgin. You get to heaven because Jesus is your husband who you have received by faith and he has paid for every one of your failings. Unbiblical divorce or adultery or fornication or anything else. He has paid for it and you are welcomed into the family of God and dressed with his perfect white robe received as a son and a daughter of the father. That is good news to those who know their own sin. And for the rest of us, and for all of us, we need to value the gospel and therefore value the goodness of marriage and pursue it. Let's all, let's all bow and pray. Father God, there is so much that your word tells us of marriage. And if we, if we have ears to hear and a heart of faith, we will be blown away by the majesty and the glory and the beauty of what you call marriage. This wonderful design of male and female given to us in your creation as a gift.
Father God, we acknowledge that you command us not only to pursue it, not only to get married, but even deeper, down to our heart, you call us to honor it in how we think, honor it in how we speak, honor it in our chastity, in our purity, and our, 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 our self-control. And Lord God, many of us have sinned against you by sinning against marriage. We have not been faithful to the wife of our youth, or we have not been faithful to the husband that we covenanted ourselves to. We have not been careful to protect the chastity of the marriage, or we have, we have, uh, we have even played a part in, in tempting others who are married, or we have, uh, we have done things that allow the, the foxes into the gardens, as the Song of Solomon say. Father God, we confess our sin to you. And for those who trust in Jesus for forgiveness, we know that there is right now, immediate and in fact already past, forgiveness is over us, your grace is towards us, and you can restore and you can redeem and you can reform and reshape and reconcile marriages that are close to destruction or even uh, unduly separated or under great stress. We thank you, God, for that promise and blessing. And for those who are not yet married, Lord, we pray that you would, in this per perverse and corrupt generation, would you maintain us in purity? Would you maintain us in honoring marriage and pursuing one another out of love to Christ? Would you, would you make many more marriages to come out of, out of this church and beyond as people honor your design, pursue a reception of your gift? And God, I pray that those who are single longer than what they desire that you would maintain them, sustain them, preserve them, and give to this church a, a, an in of righteousness atmosphere, that we support one another, pray together, and give them homes to feel at home in. Father God, please save the unbelievers in our midst, that they would be forgiven of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ on the last day. Father God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our, our husband, our God, our Savior, our shepherd. In Jesus' name, we all pray these things, and everybody said, This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.